0: Welcome to 76 West, a podcast of the Marlene Myerson JCC Manhattan, featuring talks from the JCC's Conversation Series, a marquee program of the Lambert Center for Arts and Ideas. This podcast is brought to you by Zabars and Zabars.com. Today we'll be listening to a discussion between Roxane Gay and Abigail Pogrebin, part of Abby's ongoing series of the JCC, What Everyone's Talking About. Roxane Gay is the author of the New York Times bestselling books, Bad Feminist and Hunger, the nationally best-selling Difficult Women. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, McSweeney's, The Nation, and other publications. Roxanne is also the first Black woman to write for Marvel. Her comic series, World of Wakanda, is set in the Black Panther universe. This talk was recorded on October 8th, 2018. I hope you enjoy it.
1: nobody likes you here i know it's (laughs) It's a tough crowd you're gonna have to win them over it's i'll do my best okay i really will (laughs) hi everybody it's nice to be together after such a calm week in the news (laughs) last week yeah not much happened not much happened not much at all and we're going to talk about your amazing book but i just want to start with what happened last week I know you have some thoughts about it, and no. we didn't. I didn't ask you back there in the green room, <laughs> but but just because obviously it also ties in with what we're going to talk about in terms of your own childhood trauma. It really struck me how indelible it is to have an experience like you had, like Dr. Ford had. So just even to just address seeing that play out the way you did. On this national stage with the vitriol that it created. Um, can you just tell us kind of what your reaction was watching that happen?
2: Um, you know, my reaction was broadly same shit, different day. Um, because we saw this in 1991 when Anita Hill testified about being sexually harassed by Clarence Thomas, and he went ahead and was confirmed. So there was a really good chance that Brett Kavanaugh was going to be confirmed. And I knew that the moment that Dr. Ford's allegations came out. And I also believed her immediately because I went to Yale in 1992 and um, the culture there is exactly as she, as you would expect a man like Brett Kavanaugh to be produced by it. Um, It was really disappointing too, to see her testify in front of all those men and a couple women and... To know that they actually probably believed her, and that wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to ruin, as they love to say, a man's life. I mean, may we all be so ruined. Um, it's just incredibly disappointing and disheartening. And you know, a lot of people are saying, you know, how do we hold on to hope? And I actually today do not have an answer for you. Uh, because he has already moved into his offices in the Supreme Court with his four women clerks. And uh, the media is making a lot of hay out of that, as if that doesn't mean he's a a sexual assaulter. That just means he has more targets who have more reasons to stay quiet about his predation. So it's all very discouraging.
1: And in terms of his anger, and that uh, obviously everyone disagrees on how this turned, but that there is pretty much widespread agreement that his choice to, um, rail and, uh, spit and obviously get worked as worked up as he did as Mm outrage was effective.
2: It was incredibly effective. He was well coached, but so was Dr. Ford, like who knew that she had to be poised and articulate and intelligent in order to have, uh, any hope of being seen as credible. But I have no doubt that the president sent some sort of message to Kavanaugh to put on a good show and to show his outrage, and he did. And it's really interesting to see the leeway that rich white men are given because he was incredibly rude to every Democratic senator during the proceedings, and he was righteous in his anger and the tears, my God. Um, <laughs> like, oh, poor little Brett. Uh, It was all very sad. I mean, he just put on a good show. And he knew he was putting on a good show. And he was allowed. And it it just once again reminded us of the privileges that certain people have to be emotional. Whereas if a woman had taken that tact, she would have been called emotional and hysterical and incapable. uh, and And unfit. Absolutely unfit. And now this man is going to sit on the Supreme Court and make decisions about women's bodies. It's grim.
1: Well, you were saying poor little Brett, and that's part of also what's happened, which mm-hmm. is the uh, empathy uh, or the pathos of men who have now been accused and can be buried with one accusation.
2: Absolutely. Um,
1: and there are, there is, I mean, I think there's definitely some sanity in saying that one accusation should not be sufficient, and this was not an example of one accusation. But in terms of the piece that you chose to write, Um, your op-ed in the Times. I just want to quote it for a minute. Um, A year ago, you write, when the allegations against Harvey Weinstein were first published, I wrote about what I hoped men would do in that moment of reckoning. And you quote yourself, men can start putting in some of the work women have long done in offering testimony. They can come forward and say, me too, while sharing how they have hurt women in ways great and small. I was being naive, I suppose, or I was placing too much faith in decency. But I never imagined that instead of self-reflection, men would reflect on how they had been harmed by their own bad behavior. Mm -hmm.
2: I genuinely thought when the Me Too movement began in this current iteration, that at least a few men would come forward and say, you know what, I think there were times when I misunderstood consent and uh, perhaps pushed too far or cajoled a woman into sex when I should have taken the first no uh, as a no instead of as a maybe. And that really has not happened. And uh, I guess I just, I, I truly, like, you know, as I wrote, gave too much credit to decency and just doing of the right thing. And instead what we've seen in the past, I would say three or four weeks, is men crying about being accused of sexual misconduct when they have in fact committed sexual misconduct. Uh, you know, Louis C.K., bless his ignorant heart, has just decided, you know, I'm gonna inflict myself on the public without their consent. <laughs> which is his kink, because that's what he was accused of doing and that's what he admitted to doing, just sort of randomly whipping it out and masturbating in front of women. Um, and Gian Gomeshi wrote that horrible piece in the New York Review of Books, which was really stunning because he's not a writer. Um, so like at least like there was no relevance and it was truly surprising to see a a publication that I I actually very much respected go that route and he really was just saying, woe is me. Uh, But also he was very proud of being like the first Me Too man, Uh, which I, I guess that's a choice to be proud of that. And um, John Hawkenberry who wrote this really sad piece about uh, 7,000 words in Harper about um, how much his life has changed and how his life has been ruined because of his bad behavior and that romance is dead in the workplace. Uh, and then he misunderstood Lolita as a love story. Um, and there's not much you can do with people like that. who. Have a fundamental inability to read, Uh, (laughs) because Nabokov was quite clear on what Lolita was about.
1: What would you say to to someone who came to you and said, "I did, I screwed up, I did this"? What would you say is the roadmap Mm -hmm. for the way back, and 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 how much time is enough time?
2: It really depends on a case by case basis. It depends on what they did. Um, If it's I cajoled a woman into sex. uh, but then the sex became consensual, if that's even possible. You know, I think the, the penance is different from someone who commits rape or um, who, does, who commits sexual harassment in the workplace that keeps a woman from being her best self in the workplace and achieving the career goals that she has set out for herself. I think it's truly on a case-by-case basis, but it has to begin with an acknowledgment of wrongdoing and a, a mea culpa, and a public public one, a public one, unless, you know, I don't even know that it has to be public. I think the victim gets to choose. And if she or he wants it to be public, then it should be. And um, I think in the case of famous people, in many ways it does have to be public. They do have to come forward and say, I did these things and I'm wrong. And then they have to take some time, but that time has to be more than nine months, which is how long Louis C.K. took. And it has to be, it, right now we're just coming up on a year for some of these men who have been accused of wrongdoing. It's still too soon. And it's particularly too soon because with the exception of Louis C.K., none of them have admitted to what they've done. They have said, perhaps I was a bit too forceful in arguing in the workplace. And I'm like, girl, if you were just being too forceful, this, that would be one thing. You were a pig and you were wrong, and you need to own that. And they just can't seem to do that. They can't seem to admit. And I think we see this with Kavanaugh, like that they actually did wrong, because they feel so entitled to women's bodies and time and energy that they just think, oh, no, I was just being a man.
1: So let's turn to your book. Um, It's really struck me that you said in the book, and you've said in many interviews, how reluctant you were to write this and to finish this. Mm Can you tell us why it was so difficult to take on?
2: Definitely. You know, Hunger is a memoir of my body, and it's a book I sold in August of 2014, just before Bad Feminist came out. And I was thinking about what I wanted to do for my next nonfiction project, and I thought to myself, well, the thing I want to do least is write about fatness. And in that moment, I recognized, oh, shit, this is the book I'm going to have to write. <laughs> because I have always found that the work I find to be the most intimidating often ends up being the most intellectually gratifying. And so I knew I wanted to write about fatness and I knew that I wanted to write about fatness in a way we have not historically seen. Because generally when people write about fatness, they write about it from within the context of weight loss and they have figured it all out. And in general, there's a picture of them standing in half of their formerly fat pants and they're very happy. And congratulations. Um, They're like, look how much weight I've lost. uh, I wish I could write that story. And uh, that would be fun. But that's not my story. And so I just wanted to write a book about fatness where fatness was the thing. And it wasn't a problem to be solved necessarily. It was just a reality. And I also wanted to talk about fatness as a result of trauma. Because... We don't also see a lot of people that are open about talking about that because you never want to have to apologize for fatness or explain it away as if there's, as, as if fatness is something that requires justification, which it does not. And sometimes when you say, well, this was in large part because of trauma, people feel like you're trying to justify it. I'm not justifying it, but I am saying there is a direct trajectory between trauma and fatness for me.
1: And can we talk about that trauma? and Sure your choice to also write about it as, uh, I guess, honestly and candidly, mm-hmm. which is redundant, um, it's, it, it was, I think, notable that your parents were going to he- maybe hear about this for the first time. Mm-hmm. So was that part of the decision, as you maybe describe or condense, because obviously you want people to read the book, were you weighing um, the fact that you're very close to these people who were going to be surprised by it and upset by it?
2: Well, they weren't going to be surprised, because they found out from Time magazine I don't recommend doing that. Yeah. <laughs> um, because I wrote about it in Bad Feminist in an essay called What We Hunger For. And I had not planned, I had never told my parents. And I was gang raped when I was 12 years old. And um, I never told my parents, though I'm sure they suspected something bad had happened. I know they suspected, but they were never quite sure what. And... um When Bad Feminist came out, Time Magazine wrote an article about me, and they said that 2014 is the year of Roxane Gay because (laughs) I had two books come out that year. It was really weird. And um, so that was really nice. But I didn't realize that they were going to write this article and that they were going to talk so explicitly about what was in the book. And so my dad called me, and he said, well, you know, Roxane, I read Time. And I was like, oh. So it was awkward, but it actually opened up a very good conversation. And so when Hunger was coming out, I told them, I don't want you to read Hunger, but here are the things that are in it. You can still go to church on Sunday and hold your head high. There's nothing shameful in here. And that was that. So it was difficult. And unfortunately, they did listen this time. I told them not to read Bad Feminist either, but they read it. Uh, But this time I was like, no, really? Really? Trust me, you don't need to know everything about your daughter. And it wasn't even about my assault. It was just more like some of the other stuff.
1: Like, you need Which to know. Yeah,
2: so um, they respected it. This time they have not read it, but they have come to many events. They came to the launch here in New York. Um, they were at an event with me last week. Right. Yeah, it is.
1: So at 12 years old, can you say this is a friend?
2: Yeah, um, so we were living in Princeton, New Jersey, and... Um, there was a young man who lived across the street and he was like my boyfriend, but he would not claim me in school. He was only like my boyfriend in the neighborhood where no one else could know or see. And I loved him. I just thought, oh, he's my dreamboat. And um, he was older and more mature and I was very naive and extremely sheltered because my parents are deeply Catholic. And so like sex was not a thing. I knew what sex was. They were not, um, they were, they gave us information. So we did have like sex education at home and of course in school, but I was very naive. And so I thought this boy loved me. Uh, He did not. And so one day he took me into the woods and a bunch of his friends were waiting in this hunting cabin and, One thing led to another terrible thing, and um, they raped me. And I did not know what was happening, and then I certainly did, and it was quite a lot to handle. And then I went home, and I still to this day don't quite know how I hid it from my parents, but I was a really good kid. And when you're a really good kid, you know how to manipulate your parents and keep them from like paying too much attention. So I just went to my room and I told them I wasn't feeling well and they checked on me but kind of left me alone that night. And um, that was the beginning of quite a long time of being traumatized.
1: And it, it was shared in school.
2: By it was. Of- the next day those boys went to school and told everybody what happened, but they told a very different version. Um, they, they said that I was willing that I was the ringleader as if I even knew what sex really was. Um, and it wasn't sex, but at the time I thought it was. And so I didn't know everyone knew. Um, and I walked into French class and they were all whispering slut, slut, slut. And so I was just like, what are they talking about? And then I realized, oh my God. And it was just the most mortifying experience Mm. to know like that everybody in school knew and even the teacher had clearly heard this rumor and didn't say anything. Mm. It was just a failure on so many levels by so many people.
1: And you didn't have really a vocabulary for rape at that. I point. didn't.
2: I did not know. I did not know rape was a thing. I did not know what it was. I did not gain that vocabulary until I went to high school and um, got into therapy.
1: But this obviously is um, indelible. It changes everything. It does. It and does it does now connect to the weight gain, am I right?
2: Absolutely, I was, you know, in the aftermath, I was really scared of boys, um, I was terrified of them. And I I felt so small when they were assaulting me and so powerless. And I just thought, I wanna make myself bigger so that the next time this happens, I can protect myself. And I also knew um, this guy was just, super asshole and he hated fat kids. And so I just thought, well, if I'm fat, they won't even like be interested in me. And food was the one vice I had available to me because my parents were so strict, like alcohol was never going to be an option to like, just drink myself into a stupor. So I ate myself into a stupor instead. And at the time, you know, when you're 12 and you're naive and you have this terrible secret, that seems like a really good idea. And, it's very easy to gain weight and very hard to lose it.
1: And so when your parents started to see it happening?
2: They freaked out. Um, I went to boarding school, and when I came home, that was the first time where I had food without supervision because they noticed I was overeating at home, but my mother in particular is quite intense about food. And so... um, she was easier to control because she doesn't believe in preservatives or canned goods or frozen food. So she was always, like before it was hip, making things like naturally um, from fresh ingredients. And so there wasn't a lot to access. But at boarding school, there was a Wawa, and, um, which is delicious.
1: I remember Wawa, yeah.
2: And Woolworths back then had a lunch counter where you could go and have food. And there was pizza delivery, which was this whole new thing. And so I just, and there was a thing on campus called the grill, which is exactly what it sounds like. (laughs) French fries and hamburgers. And so I just ate and ate and ate. And it was awesome because food is delicious. And I just got bigger and bigger. And when I went home for Thanksgiving, I had probably gained, I don't know, 40 pounds. Mm. And my parents were like, who are you? Like I was unrecognizable. And so they immediately became like the arbiters of my body and tried to fix the problem through several rather disastrous things.
1: What were some of them?
2: Um, An all-liquid diet, which I did for several months and I lost all the weight. And uh, fat camp. Richard Simmons, Deal-A-Meal, Weight Watchers, Jenny Craig. I mean, if it was there, they made me do it.
1: And you didn't fight it?
2: No, because I had not yet understood that you can rebel. <laughs> and so I rebelled through eating, that and I just kept eating. I would, like, lose weight during these, like, supervised moments of summer and then go back to campus and gain it all back. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I yo-yoed for several years, but I wish I weighed now what I did in high school. Like, when I look back, I'm just like, why were we all worried? <laughs> like, 140 pounds, girl, you're fine. It's going to be okay.
1: So, you're very close to your parents. It I com- am. It comes through the book. Um, and yet there are these pockets of kind of silence where there's things that you're not talking about or working through mm-hmm how were they sort of begging you to please do something about this or is it yeah or insisting was I mean, it was how did...
2: both begging and insisting um, they were definitely interested in my best interests and they understand the world as it is which is quite inhospitable to fatness and so they definitely had my best interests at heart but i think they also They're from Haiti, and fatness is simply just not a thing in Haiti for a lot of reasons. Part of them is socioeconomic, and it's also really hot. So you sweat all the time. (laughs) Um, So they just didn't understand it culturally either. It was incredibly foreign. My dad is 6'4 and weighs 145 pounds. So... And I mean, that's his normal weight. He's fine, because <laughs> every people are always like, is he alive still? And I'm just, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how that little dude does it, but yeah.
1: Um, and your siblings, you describe that they're very good looking, and yeah. that you people would kind of look at you and say, how is she in this family?
2: Yeah, they would often wonder like, who is she? Because my middle brother is. Um, he played soccer professionally. The youngest also played soccer. Um, And they're both tall and fit and conventionally attractive. And they fit in with my parents who are fit and conventionally attractive. And then there was me. Um, And I feel that I was plenty attractive, but I was not fit. And so people oftentimes when they were introduced to me, because I was the kid at boarding school and then the kid at college, um, they would be like, oh, this is Roxanne. Even now it still happens. Uh, And they're like, oh and I'm just like
1: <laughs> um, I think you do describe in, in a way that a book never has what the day-to-day kind of reality is of the, of being overweight can you just give us some sense of particular things like travel um...
2: yeah I mean you know one of the That was one of the main reasons I wanted to write the book because people have so little empathy for people who are in different kinds of bodies. And I don't think people think about how they take up space at all, but fat people in general do think quite a lot about it because the world constantly reminds us. And so Flying in Coach it is a nightmare because people hate when you encroach upon their seat. And actually, I do get it. But at the same time, why don't you talk to the airlines about these ridiculously narrow seats that nobody can really fit in comfortably? And uh, you know, so flying can be really a hostile experience because people take out all their aggression on the easiest target, which is the fat person. Uh, and so I um, reached a, a tax bracket where I have solved that problem through first class travel. <laughs> But um, but you said sometimes you would buy two seats. And back in the day when I was broke, um, I would drive almost everywhere for book events. And um, before any of these books came out, except for my first book, IET, um, I would just drive. And if I had to fly somewhere, I would buy two plane tickets, which was extraordinarily expensive and in many ways is more expensive than Uh, one first-class ticket, Um, but I didn't even know that at the time. It just didn't cross my mind that that was a thing. So I would buy two tickets, and you think you're doing the right thing, and airlines are not well-equipped. Even though they tell you to buy the second ticket, when you get up to the gate, they're like, why do you have two tickets? I would just be like, why do you think? Um, The only airline that handles it well is Southwest. Really? Absolutely. And if they haven't sold the the flight, they refund you the cost of the extra ticket. Wow. It's good to know. Yes. Yeah, so if you're ever looking to fly and you're a little husky, Southwest is your airline.
1: Um, grocery shopping. It was stunning to me that people actually.
2: Oh, yeah. Study. People will look at your cart and study it and comment on it and take food out of your cart if they don't think you should be eating it, which is interesting because then they'll be like smoking in the parking lot. <laughs> so, really? Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So just microaggressions.
1: And there was also kind of a sense that not like banging into you, stepping, that surprised me that people.
2: Oh yeah. That happens quite a lot. Uh, It's very frustrating. People run into me all the time as if they can't see me, Um, which yes, you can, but they don't actually see you. When you track differently, Mm -hmm. you become invisible or you become irrelevant. And so people tend to seem to think that I am very impermeable and that I don't feel pain. So they jostle and run into me and it's kind of a shit show. It's really bad. Um, But now that I'm like in my 40s, I just jab right back.
3: (laughs) 76 West is brought to you by Zabars and Zabars.com. In 1934, Lewis and Lillian Zabar opened a shop along Broadway at 80th Street on New York's Upper West Side. Lewis was a stickler for quality, roasting his own coffee and personally visiting smokehouses to sample and inspect fish, rejecting far more than he accepted. Today, Lewis's principles and practices continue to guide Zabars respect the customer, never ever stint on quality, offer fair value, and last but not least, keep searching for the new and wonderful. Be sure to visit Zabar's store on 80th and Broadway or visit Zabars.com for mouthwatering specialties like bagels, babka, rugelach, smoked fish, and of course, world-famous caviar. Zabars ships to all 48 contiguous United States, plus Alaska, Hawaii, and Puerto Rico, so there's no reason your friends can't enjoy the fresh, homemade taste of Zabars any day of the week.
1: Um, you talk about not loving to be hugged touched that there's a sort of presumption even from your fans which Mm -hmm. I can imagine they want a picture with you they want Mm -hmm. their arm around you so is that just you've always been that way
2: oh I've always been that way I'm not into it it's not my thing Um, I definitely think the touching thing is absolutely connected to my assault but like in the context of a relationship I'm totally fine like um, that I have no problem with being touched but by random strangers no thank you No, thank you. And so how do you handle it? I say, no, thank you. (laughs) And it's hard because a lot of my fans will come up to me and say, can I hug you? And I'll say no, and they'll get very upset. But nobody goes up to Jonathan Franzen and offers him a hug. It's this very unique thing that happens to women, um, where women writers aren't treated as intellectuals. They're treated as friends. I'm actually quite flattered that people feel like they're my friend because of my work, but...
1: We're not actually friends. <laughs> and so,
2: boundaries.
1: Uh, you write uh, that you denied yourself an armrest, you denied yourself bright colors. Um, punishment was one of the few things you did not deny yourself. Mm-hmm. What was that punishment?
2: It just depends. I mean, I think a lot of fat people are filled with self loathing, and uh, because the world encourages that, as if if we harass you enough, you will fix yourself. Uh, that's not actually how it works, but people are very um, married to that strategy. Uh, good luck. Um, and so you you start to internalize it and deprive yourself. At least I certainly for many years deprived myself of just simple things that I have every right to, uh, simply because I, I felt like that was the only option for me. Um, like what? Like. Comfort, um, allowing myself to take up space, allowing myself to go into the public and do things I like, like going to museums or going to the theater, which are things I very much enjoy doing. But for many years, I just stopped doing these things because I just thought, well, you know, don't subject the public to you. Um, You don't deserve these nice things. Uh, Just tolerate whatever nonsense comes your way. Just be miserable until you can fix this problem.
1: What about relationships? How did that, I mean, you talk about that in the book, and it, mm-hmm. it seems to be a fairly healthy, I mean, in the scheme of of difficulty, it hasn't been that difficult.
2: No, um, you know, it's interesting. I was, I gained a lot of weight just to make people leave me alone, but I have found that, especially with men, there is absolutely no size at which men won't bother you. So, <laughs> <laughs> just like, they just are what they are. Um, so I've, I've been in relationships for most of my adult life. Many of them have been quite terrible, but like just terrible in the way that all relationships when you're in your 20s are terrible. Um, and in my 30s, I was in a long-term relationship with a man while I was in grad school, and that was a very good relationship. And um, now I'm also in a long-term relationship that is very good.
1: Great. Applause for that. <laughs> <laughs> um, There was this kind of, I I don't know if you call it your lost year or Mm -hmm. um, when you, it was when you left Yale for a while. Can you just describe kind of what made you abandon ship there and Mm -hmm. and where you went?
2: Well, you've been to New Haven. (laughs) 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 New Haven is... uh, Not
1: much to recommend it. No,
2: I hate New Haven really a lot. (laughs) I'm actually teaching at Yale next semester and I told them, I was like, I cannot live here for 14 weeks and I will not come every week. So... I will see you every other week. And they were, surprisingly, left. They were like, okay, we'll have a grad student teacher class on the other week. I was like, yeah, nice. Um, So I went to Yale for college for the first two years. And um, it was interesting because a lot of people from my high school had gone there. So it did not feel like a huge transition in the way going from junior high to high school was. So I got deeply involved with the Dramat which is um, theater and it was a lot of fun and I loved it, but I was not really going to class, which turns out is a thing that you're supposed to do in college. (laughs) Uh, I changed my major three times and underlying all of it was not having dealt with any of my trauma. Hmm. And so I had a a mental breakdown after my sophomore year and I was about to start my junior year and I had been corresponding on the beginnings of the internet uh, with a man in Arizona who was like, yeah, I'm going to fly you out and we're going to go to some parties in San Francisco. And I was like, yeah, cool, good idea. And he was 44 and I was 19. And he was a good guy. I mean, as good as the man who lures a 19-year-old to California is. But he never hurt me. He never did anything I didn't consent to. And I think it's important to talk about that because he's a really nice guy, um, other than the perv part. Um, (laughs) And so that was interesting. And I left and I took a year off uh, and just disappeared from my life. I didn't tell anyone I was leaving. I didn't tell anyone where I was going. I just needed to not be Roxanne Gay. And I needed to not be accountable to my family who were so baffled by this drastic change that they had seen over the previous seven years. Um, And I didn't know how to tell them, I'm not the girl you think. And I had been performing the role of the girl they thought I was for so long and I couldn't do it anymore. And so I just cracked up.
1: And writing is really what pulled you out? Absolutely. Writing. um, I
2: had always written all through high school and writing is honestly what saved my life. And Uh, in high school, one of my teachers, Mr. McGuinn, saw these psychotic stories I was writing about sexual assault and took me to the counseling center on campus. And I'm so grateful for that Mm -hmm. because so many people do inappropriate things or think I can fix her myself. And he knew that I needed professional help. And then he mentored me as a writer. Um, And... I will never forget that kindness. In fact, he's the only reason I donate money to my high school. I I donate in his name every year because he just saw me and heard me and didn't fix me, but took me to people that could.
1: And then in terms of what really turned your career into a career, what was that turning point? Um,
2: I think that turning point was uh, an essay I wrote in probably 2009 called The Careless Language of Sexual Violence for the Rumpus. Uh, This young girl in Cleveland, Texas had been gang-raped by an extraordinary number of men, I think 28. It was truly a horrific crime. And the New York Times wrote an article where everyone was lamenting the poor town and how the town was affected by this child's assault. And I was horrified because I just thought, perhaps the the 11-year-old girl is um, the one who's the victim here. I don't know, just guessing. And so I wrote this blaze of an article And uh, it it wasn't my first essay, but it was really the first essay that I did with deliberateness. And um, it was published in the Rumpus. And then the New York Times fixed the article by rewriting it, which, thank God. And they put the appropriate focus on the young woman. Well, she's a young woman now, but she was a girl back then. And, um, you know, not worrying about the town at all. And also, like, wondering, like, who are these guys who got together um, because some of them were on the basketball team in the town others were grown men and it had happened there was cell phone video and so the second article did more to critique like what kind of culture in this town enabled this because people were talking about it because it went on for i think like two days mm. it was not So
1: your piece story. really changed the reporting it in did. a sense I did, and then you started writing for Rumpus. And, I did, and you developed really a cult following. I did. Uh, I had a nice
2: following at the Rumpus, and it was a great experience. And um, Dave Daly at Salon saw my writing at the Rumpus, and so I started writing for Salon, and that was actually the first time I ever got paid for writing for not for writing nonfiction. And then someone at the Guardian saw what I was doing at Salon, and then someone at New York Times saw what I was doing at the Guardian, and so one thing led to another.
1: So it's got to be somewhat surreal to be a contributor to The New York Times after all of this. I mean, does that... No, it's entirely expected. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
2: Um, I'm very ambitious. And so I knew that if I was going to do opinion writing and nonfiction cultural criticism, I wanted to do it for um, the best. And so... um, it is surreal, but in, in in other ways, it is not.
1: And when you considered writing Hunger, did you worry at all about how this was going to now be the thing that people think and talk about? Is, is No. It, you didn't?
2: I didn't, because from one book to the next, I do something entirely different for that very reason. Um, so I don't ever want to be, yes, I don't ever want to be pigeonholed as a black woman writer, even though I'm proud to be a black woman writer. And if if that's what you lead with, that's fine because it's true. Um, but I don't want to people to think I only write about one thing because I contain multitudes. And so every project is different and hopefully a way that is engaging for my readership.
1: And you've talked about how often you are the only black woman, black person on a panel at Mm -hmm. a conference. I mean, how much are you aware, um, You've also talked about sexuality and and being in love with both men and women. Mm -hmm. Do you ever worry that in some ways you're you're filling the slot of diversity because there is such an absence of these voices?
2: Oh, I am filling the slot. I know I am, and sometimes. But the deeper I get into my career, the more I insist that I not be the only person of color, the only black woman specifically, um, depending on the context of whatever event that I'm doing. And... Uh, that helps, but uh, it has to come from more than just black women, that you include black women and black people and then people of color more broadly in these events. So uh, I always also ask my white contributors, what have you done to increase the diversity of this event? Uh,
1: in terms of feminism, because you talked a lot about it. Never obviously. heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> um there, there is some confusion about. I think like where, what would you say about whether you are a feminist or where? Oh, is
2: there really a confusion? Not confusion, oh.
1: but a sense that <laughs> the, the 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 word the word has, mm-hmm. as you know, in some ways, become a, a third whale mm-hmm. for some reason that I actually don't understand myself. But for especially for the younger generation, mm-hmm. so can you just address, especially looking back at bad feminists and where things are? How do you see that today?
2: Uh, You know, when I wrote Bad Feminist, especially the title essay, I was thinking through my relationship with feminism and how conflicted that relationship was because I'm absolutely a feminist. However, mainstream feminism has been so neglectful of queer women, women of color, working class women, women with disabilities, trans women, that it's hard to claim that um, when it. Is such a narrowly focused movement. And so I thought, if that's good feminism, then I am a very bad feminist. And it was also tongue-in-cheek, like, haha. I did not think it was going to become a thing. Um, but I just wanted to establish that my feminism is hopefully more inclusive and recognizes the importance of the intersections of identity that we all inhabit.
1: And that, applause. Um, thank, you. thank you. And and I think you talk about that there's room for more messiness. Of-
2: yeah, that was the other part of it. Uh, I had, for especially throughout my 20s, been quite intimidated by feminism because I felt like the bar for entry was so high and that you really had to be impeccable in terms of everything that you did. And I'm not that person. There are things about which I am inconsistent. And... I have bad days and I, I'm not always present with the right answer or the right ideology, but that doesn't mean I'm any less of a feminist. And so I wanted to create a space within feminism that, that would be more flexible and more accommodating of our humanity and the realities of being human in a complicated world.
1: Did you get any pushback on the title of that, of bad feminist? Oh
2: no. Um, the book was originally called what we hunger for. Um, And my publisher was like, too many words. (laughs) I was like, it's four. Uh, But how about Bad Feminist? That's super catchy. And then they were like, yeah, that's the title of your book. And so, no, they wanted Bad Feminist.
1: And the title of this book, Hunger, Mm -hmm. that we're mostly focusing on, we get sort of the hunger, the eating hunger. There's many meanings here. But Mm -hmm. can you talk about the psychological hunger, the physical? um, I think that you talk a lot about desire being allowed, entitled, to desire, to have these mm-hmm. wants.
2: Yeah, it's about just being open with your desires, and, and that craving, that craving for peace, that craving for, for love, for affection, for acceptance, for food. Um, so it's both emotional hungers and physical hungers. And um, I also wanted to address the too-many-word problem. So just one word. Um, my next book is a letter. <laughs>
1: um, you've written since about about the surgery mm-hmm. that you chose mm-hmm. um, and that you worried about that it would be a betrayal of some kind. Can you yeah. talk about that?
2: Yeah, in January I had weight loss surgery. Um, after all this, <laughs> I was like, oh, sh- uh, fuck it. Um, <laughs> no, it was a really difficult decision and I agonized over it for years. And then... Um, in the past, like starting in November of 2017, I was thinking about it more and I just hit the wall in terms of dealing with all of the societal nonsense that comes with fatness, but also recognizing that I'm 43 and that... The older I get, the more it was going to be difficult to, like, literally move around and live in the world comfortably. And that given the amount of years I had left, it was going to be faster to change my body than to change the world, which is not to say that I'm going to give up on trying to change the world, but I know this way it was faster. Um, so I got the surgery and...
1: Can you say what it was? Yeah, I had a, um, what did I
2: have? The gastric sleeve. I was not gonna do the bypass. I think the bypass is the most barbaric, insane surgery. Um, But if you've got it, congratulations. Uh, It's just too much. Like they literally rewire your intestines. And so I already have a terrible digestive system. So I was like, let's not mess with that anymore.
1: But can you talk about, you do talk in the book about about the risks or in the the piece uh, also for the sleeve, no? Yeah,
2: oh, I mean, surgery is surgery. So there are always risks. And um, I went to a really good surgeon and, and at UCLA Medical Center in Los Angeles, um, who had done the surgery for a friend of mine. And, um, you know, basically they cut out your stomach and make you a new one that's really small. And so stitches can be loose, there can be leakage. Um, if you don't follow the directions to the letter in the weeks and months after the surgery, you can basically tear the new stomach, mm-hmm. um, you can die on the table. Uh, it's not great. But um, I was well-informed. I had thought about it for at least a decade before doing it. And I was very comfortable with my surgeon because he was an asshole. Um, I love an asshole surgeon. I've had surgery three times in my life, and all three surgeons were an asshole, and I woke up. So like, if, he's, if, I, if a nice doctor comes near me, I'm just like, mm-mm. Go find someone else to kill, not me.
1: <laughs> and can I ask how, how you're feeling?
2: Like I feel great. Um, I've lost 137 pounds, um, <laughs> uh, which is good, I, 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 um, which is great. I mean, it's night and day. The difference is night and day. Um, I, I still have 200 pounds to lose, um, which is a lot to wrap my mind around, but I'll get there. Um, because it comes off so fast that at least it feels fast to me, like it's only been ten months. Mm-hmm. and so, and I'm also like on the slow plan. Like there are people that lose twice as much in the same time, but I was not interested in that because I'm interested in actually keeping it off. Um so but I feel great. Um, I can walk now. I can walk miles at a time. I work out every day. Um, just a change in spryness, a change in clothing options. Um, fitting behind the steering wheel of my car. Uh, my girlfriend can wrap her arms around me. It's exciting.
1: Uh, I'm on your Instagram, and I also see that you cook. It's I do. Really delicious things. I They look I
2: delicious. I'm a very good cook.
1: But <laughs> So is that something that's a passion? Because it doesn't seem like you have much time for it.
2: It's not a passion. Um, I'm new to cooking. I... Um, was a vegetarian for many years and was living in the middle of nowhere. And so I recognized that if I was going to eat, and I write about this in the book, anything but um, iceberg lettuce and french fries, I was gonna have to learn how to cook. And so I, I learned how to cook from Ina Garten. Yes, she's perfect, she's perfect, I love her. I like, when I say I love her, my wireless network is called Barefoot Contessa. Um, and so I would watch her show and then I would print out her recipes on the, and I would make them and sometimes well, and sometimes not. <laughs> and I'm still not, I'm, the, I'm a good cook when I follow the recipe. I'm not a good cook when I ad lib and just get really bold and think, Hmm, I'm going to put some mushrooms in this. Uh-uh, no, uh, no, no, no. So it's been fun. It relaxes me. I especially love baking. Um, And so I just like following the little rules and recognizing that at the end of it, you're going to get something delicious. Um, And ladies love it.
1: (laughs) We're going to go to questions in one second, but I just want to go back to the fact that you looked up Christopher. You call him Christopher Mm -hmm. in the book. After a number of years of not, Mm -hmm. what was the choice to find him? And have you kind of tracked him since?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I was super curious as to what had happened, like where this guy went. What I really wanted to know, and it's a question I'll actually never have answered, was did this event affect him in any way? Does it still affect him the way it affects me? And... um There's no way to know that, but I Googled him nonetheless, and I eventually did track him down. And I did not know the name of the other men that were involved. The names, uh, I just knew them from around school. And so there was like, you know, a lot of times people say, why didn't you tell anyone? like, tell them what? Um, Mm -hmm. At the time, it just wasn't even a possibility, and now the statute of limitations has long expired, and there's just no upside. And I feel bad about that sometimes uh, because I have no doubt in my mind that these men went on to assault other women. But I also know that it's actually not my responsibility to keep them from assaulting other women. It's theirs. Um, So I just wanted to know what had become of him. And I do know, and it's not satisfying at all, but I know.
1: And you did call at one point. I
2: did. I called his office. And just listened. He kept saying hello over and over. And then we just sat there in silence um, for quite like probably like 10 minutes. And so I think he might have known it was me. But um, I just wanted to know.
1: I just want to read what you write about about him because I think it's remarkable. I wonder if he knows I have sought out men who would do to me what he did or that they often found me because they knew I was looking. I wonder if he knows how I found them and how I pushed away every good thing. Does he know that for years I could not stop what he started? Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. um, You know, I think there are a lot of different ways in which people respond to sexual violence. But for me, especially in my late teens and early 20s, uh, promiscuity was the word of the day. And just sort of like trying to recreate that feeling, just trying to, I don't know like what I thought I was going to accomplish, but it's just sort of like, all right, it already happened once. So let me just, whatever, anything goes, do whatever you want. Um, and so it was for quite some time of pretty dangerous cycle of seeking out terrible people to do terrible things. And then wondering why I was doing this. It was quite an bad cycle, but then I whew, grew out of it oh, therapy with therapy. I didn't just like magically figure it out.
1: Yes. We're believers in therapy. What, what I'm sure there's other victims of, a, of assault who have come to you, written to you. How do you, does that overwhelm you? Um,
2: it depends. It doesn't, I mean, it, it's always just heartbreaking to see what other people have survived. And to see, you know, you think you know that sexual violence is prevalent because we have the statistics. But when you get these stories time after time, um, you just realize it's so bad and there's so much behind the statistics. Um, So it can be overwhelming in that I'm not a psychologist. And so I always make clear, like, I'm not a therapist. I can't fix this for you. I can hear your story, but I am just one person and I have my own pain and my own life to carry, Um, but I I do appreciate that people feel like they can trust me with their stories, and so I do try to honor that at all times while also maintaining very firm boundaries um, because I cannot be your mental health care provider.
1: I think that's the perfect way to end. I promised her that she'd have time to sign books, and she will, and thank you all for coming. Thank you.
0: That was Roxane Gay talking with Abigail Pogrebin. Our podcasts are produced by Megan Whitman and me, Eric Winnick. Our editor is Matt Temkin. Music is by Peril Wolf. The voice of Zabars is Leah Rosensweet. Please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And if you can, share this episode with your friends. If you're just joining us, welcome. And be sure to subscribe for future episodes.